This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Today's CBS Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Tough Shed. Start dreaming of a backyard season and how great it could be with a durable, attractive new shed, studio, or garage from Tough Shed. Use our online design tool at toughshed.com, then let our building experts handle the final details, delivery, and installation. Nobody has what Tough Shed has. Make this the year of your backyard. Give us a call, stop in, or design online at toughshed.com. Dream, design, and build with Tough Shed. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. It being a lazy Sunday morning, you may have just added some milk to your coffee or poured a little milk into your bowl of cereal. Or did you? These days, plenty of bottles and cartons on the supermarket shelf are labeled milk. But are they really? You might say the debate over what actually constitutes milk is a fluid one as Serena Altshul will report in our cover story. You may have noticed a lot of new products in the dairy aisle. 
made from everything but milk. Pea milk, flax milk, soy milk, almond milk, uh, God only knows how many different kinds of things there are. It seems almost endless. None of them are milk. So who owns the word milk, and who gets to use it? Well, it's a bit of a food fight. Later on Sunday morning, we got milk. (laughs) Margaret Atwood is the author of The Handmaid's Tale, a harrowing vision of an oppressive future that's made for a disturbing television series. The sequel to her novel is out this week, but not before she talks with our Martha Teichner. So in the spring, you got the migrating warblers. Uh It's hard to believe this nice lady is famous for scaring the living daylights out of millions of people. You girls will serve the leaders of the faithful. Did you fully intend The Handmaid's Tale to be a warning? What does it matter what I fully intended or not? It is a warning. Break a leg. Break a leg. <laughs> Later this Sunday morning, we catch up with Margaret Atwood. Our Sunday journal this morning is from correspondent Ramey Innocencio, all about the months of protests that have rocked China. Hong Kong has a long and complicated history, and now must reconcile its colonial past with an authoritarian future. But it's never seen a summer like this. If we don't fight, there was was no no future for us. The view from the streets of Hong Kong ahead on Sunday morning. Aaron Moriarty looks at the origins of the Me Too movement. James Brown profiles Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson, the NFL's highest paid football player. Steve Hartman tells us about a most agreeable handyman. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Meet Sonny, our Sunday morning make-believe cow. No one would expect real milk to come from this bogus bovine. But what about milk, or so it's called, from oats or soy? Our cover story is reported by Serena Altschul. Milk is about the most perfect food there is. A glass full at every meal is good for you, and with one more, that makes a quart a day. Remember when you just couldn't drink enough milk? Dairy was considered one of the four major food groups, which, in the era before widespread refrigeration, made the milkman something of a national icon. In fact, milk was considered so important that in the late 1930s, the government legally defined milk. Andrew Novakovich is an agricultural economist at Cornell University. The whole thing is a couple hundred words, but the key sentence is uh, milk is the lacteal secretion from a cow. Milk from a cow. Milk from a cow, that's it. So you can't be almond and call yourself milk? No, no, and um, you can't put palm oil in there and say it's, you know, some kind of milk with palm oil. That's not milk. And Ralph has decided that it must be lots of milk which has given Linda such a bright smile. 
1970, the average American was drinking some 30 gallons of milk a year. Tastes great, and it's mm, good for you. Because but soon after, fat became America's public health enemy number one, which gave rise to those familiar fat-free and highly processed foods. Now I'm really going to be in great shape. And some new labels in the dairy chest. Sales of lower-fat milks like 1%, 2%, and skim were on the rise, while sales of whole milk declined. And that was just for starters. Today, dozens of beverages call themselves milk, some made of soy, others almond, cashew, rice, hemp, coconut, flax, oats, and even peas. The plant-based milk category is just exploding. We're seeing so much innovation. I always say like there's no nut or grain or seed that's left unturned. <laughs> Michelle Simon is executive director of the Plant-Based Foods Association. We're all about helping consumers who are looking to reduce their meat and dairy consumption. And right. so these are companies that are on a mission to really help provide great tasting alternatives. We met her at the Natural Products Expo West, one of the largest trade shows in the world. 85,000 people showed up in Anaheim, California earlier this year. In general, what's so great about plant-based milks is that we know they are more sustainable than dairy milk. So there's a lot of intense agriculture that goes into producing dairy products. Yeah. The milk of the moment at this year's expo, Oatly. Born out of Swedish science and just nerding down on liquid oats. Like, I think we're the only company in the world who's like really like in-depth nerding down on oats, liquid oats, for 25 years. Tony Peterson is Oatly's CEO. I haven't tried all of them. I'd like to. He says recent demand for it has been explosive. That is yummy. Our growth was like 60% last year. It's going to be 100% this year. It's going to be 100% next year. They introduced their oat milk in U.S. cafes and then supermarkets in 2016. By last year, it was so popular that Oatly couldn't keep up with demand, and by December, people were paying crazy amounts for it online. You know, it's like, we couldn't make enough. So you had nothing to do with that? You didn't pull back supply and create a crazy demand? No, That's no, just that, myth? No, that, no. That didn't happen? I wish we were that smart, but we're not. We're not, we're not that smart. We're from Sweden. <laughs> but not all milks are created equal. Plant-based beverages often have to be fortified to have the same nutritional value as cow's milk. Many plant-based milks have oils, preservatives, and emulsifiers to keep them from separating and added sugars to make them taste better. And some question whether it's fair to even call them milk at all. It's a terrible deception that the retail industry is playing on a consumer. It's not milk, it's juice. It's almond juice, it's coconut juice, it's soy juice. It's not milk. And it shouldn't be sold in the dairy aisle, and it shouldn't be labeled as milk. Timothy Demery is an organic dairy farmer in Little Falls, New York. It's a, it's a very hot potato right now uh, amongst us farmers. When we speak out, then we're accused of being lobbyists. So it's sort of like a double-edged sword. You're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I think the entire dairy industry is offended 
that you want to say my product isn't any good, but you still want to use my name. And as you can imagine, uh, farmers find that offensive. What to call plant-based beverages has become a question for lawyers and regulators. In 2014, Oatly was sued by the Swedish dairy industry. The farmers argued that Oatly denigrated milk with its advertising slogan. It's like milk, but made for humans. And they didn't like that? No. no. What's the problem, right? There's nothing in that line that is not true. Did they win? They won, absolutely. In this country, lawsuits trying to stop plant-based foods from putting the word milk on their label have been unsuccessful. But now, the FDA is taking a closer look at just what makes milk milk after receiving more than 13,000 comments on the issue. You think there'll be a reversal? Uh, you know, maybe. For example, number one brand of butter in the United States is Land O'Lakes. Land O'Lakes sells margarine. They don't call it corn butter or soy butter. They call it a different name. One of the big things that's just astonishing is FDA has said for decades, we don't think this is a case of fraud because no consumer thinks that you get milk from an almond or a soybean. So, I mean, they know what's going on. And we've done surveys where people have said, uh, I thought it was like milk with almond flavoring. It's not. Whatever you call it, it's been a good time for alternative milks. Consider this. Three years ago, Elmhurst Dairy, New York City's last remaining processor, closed its doors. Changing consumer habits will force it to close. But barely a year later, the brand returned, this time offering more than a dozen non-dairy milks. The brand's been around for about 95 years. But I like to say we were founded in 1925, but established in 2017. And even though recent research suggests whole-fat milk doesn't actually make you fat, Americans today are drinking, get this, 37% less milk than 50 years ago. In fact, over the past half century, the United States has lost one million dairy farms. Timothy Demery's may be the next to go. He grew up on the farm and, until recently, thought someday his son would take over. When the price of milk dropped the way it did, he said to me, Dad, I had a coming to Jesus moment. And I said, Danny, I'm glad you did, and I didn't have to be the one to tell you that this isn't anything to come home to anymore. Every father's dream is to be able to bring the next generation onto the farm. So if you know anyone looking for an idyllic 800-acre state-of-the-art organic milk farm, Demery's is up for sale. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, September 8, 1930. 89 years ago today, the day the Blondie comic strip first hit the funny pages. Created by cartoonist Chick Young, the strip originally portrayed Blondie as a jazz age flapper and Dagwood as a carefree playboy. But in deference to the worsening Great Depression, they were transformed just a few years later into a humble married couple. 
with Dagwood forced to take an office job under the tyranny of the dyspeptic Mr. Dithers. Dagwood's anxieties occasionally eased by the creation of one of his towering Dagwood sandwiches. Oh, all right, dear. Here you are. Along the way, Blondie and Dagwood have occasionally broken out of the printed page. I know just how you feel. Whenever I'm miserable, I just take a broom and sweep and sweep. Between 1938 and 1950, they starred in no fewer than 28 movies. America's favorite comic strip comes to life. And there were two Blondie TV shows, including a CBS series in 1968 and 69, with Patricia Harty and Will Hutchins in the title roles. Today you present them to Mr. Dithers. Right, and then, ta-ta! Along with Jim Backus as Mr. Dithers. And I think that you should have the satisfaction of presenting them to Mr. Hilton yourself personally, you might say. Still, it's on the comic pages that Blondie and Dagwood have made their true home, a place of quiet laughs and jaw-breaking sandwiches that endures to this day. Margaret Atwood is the author of The Handmaid's Tale, whose harrowing vision of a repressive future has made for a disturbing TV series. Her sequel is out this week, but not before she talks with our Martha Teichner. And the Emmy goes to The Handmaid's Tale! Oprah's exclamation was proof. The Handmaid's Tale is a big deal. It picked up eight Emmys for Hulu in 2017. And when Margaret Atwood the author of the 1985 book that inspired the TV show made her way to the stage wearing handmade red. The applause, the standing ovation, spoke volumes. They were dirty women. But you are special girls. In Atwood's novel, handmaids are essentially sex slaves. You girls will serve the leaders of the faithful. Forced to bear children for infertile couples among the power elite, in Gilead, the totalitarian dystopia the United States has become after being taken Here over by Christian zealots. Our prayer. The shadowy figure slapping handmade star Elizabeth Moss in season one. Atwood in a scary cameo. We went with her to the Toronto church gym where the scene was shot. How many times did they shoot the scene? I think they shot it four times. Wow. Me slapping Elizabeth, they had to keep shooting it because <laughs> I wasn't doing it vigorously enough. <laughs> Blessed be the fruit. May the Lord open. Well, just looking at the handmaid's outfits, um, what did you have in mind when you thought them up? The concealment of the body, number one and the limitation of the body number two. So other people can't see you, but you also can't see other people. So that and the old Dutch cleanser package from the 1940s that showed this Dutch woman in a voluminous blue dress, but with a big white hat. So a vision from my childhood. Oh, 
Outside the church, Atwood is recognized by teenagers attending day camp. Break a leg. Break a leg. Thank you. <laughs> At 79, she is Canada's most famous living writer. She's published 60 books. But The Handmaid's Tale has overshadowed the others. In English, it's sold over 8 million copies. She began the book in West Berlin in 1984. A symbolic year because of Orwell. And how could I be so corny as to have begun The Handmaid's Tale in that year? I couldn't help it. What made you want to write it? So there I am in, in West Berlin, surrounded by the wall. And I'm visiting various totalitarian regimes in East Germany and Czechoslovakia and Poland. So for instance, Ceausescu in Romania made a law that women had to have four babies. And they had to have um, pregnancy tests every month. And if they weren't pregnant, why not? In the book and the television show, every atrocity, no matter how awful, had to have happened somewhere in real life. It's not me who made this stuff up. The human race made it up, unfortunately. And did you fully intend The Handmaid's Tale to be a warning? What does it matter what I fully intended or not? It is a warning. You felt the need to create this warning? Simply because I have never believed it can't happen here. I've never believed that. And more and more people are joining me in that lack of belief. What do we do? Beginning in 2017, women all over the world began taking to the streets dressed as handmaids in the belief that fiction was indeed becoming fact, especially the restriction of women's rights. What do we do? Today, you see the costume, you know what it means. It's leaped out of Atwood's book into our politics. I don't really expect things. I make educated guesses about possibilities, but I'm not a prophet. And if I were any good at gambling, I would do that and be a lot richer. <laughs> so in the spring, you got the migrating warblers. Uh -huh. For more than 30 years, she spent her summers on Pelee Island in Lake Erie, the southernmost point in Canada. It is an important sanctuary for migratory birds. She helps to pay for conservation and, efforts uh, on the island. I've always been amongst the biologists and conservationists. Margaret Atwood actually lived in the woods as a child with her family. Her father was an entomologist. He was studying infestations, so things that cause large numbers of trees to die. So you were way, way up in... We were way up in northern Quebec, and then we were way up north of Lake Superior. When did you decide you needed to be a writer? I decided that I was a writer. It sounds like a strange thing to say, but I decided I was one when I was 16. She's done a lot of writing here on Pelee Island. Why is it such a good place to write? Nobody calls. Ah, no interruptions. <laughs> did you write the new book here? Some of it. The Testaments, a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, will be published on Tuesday. Initial print run 
half a million copies. Can you give us any hints? So we know from book one that, that Gilead ends, but we don't know how. We're a little closer to knowing how. Is there hope in the second book? Why do you want me to give away the plot? <laughs> so people will... Tons of hope. Tons, tons of, hope. of hope. Tons of, lots and lots of hope. And one more right here in the front. In this whole process and the explosion of The Handmaid's Tale and its, its, its ripples in culture, what are you most proud of? I'm Canadian, Martha. We don't do proud of. What do you do? Less embarrassed by. <laughs> <laughs>29-year-old John Potter is a handyman by trade, but he doesn't charge for most of what he does. Do you mind starting it up? Whether it's a pizza delivery guy with no way to deliver, or an electric scooter guy with no way to scoot, John is always to the rescue. Um, actually, let's throw it in the back. Like, just like a saint, pretty much. He like He's willing to help anybody with whatever size problem you have. It might take me a day, honestly. John finds his rescuees on Reddit people who have a window broken out, or can't afford the roof they need, or maybe just want help moving. John does it all for total strangers. That took a huge brain switch. He started um, doing this four years ago after a woman approached him at this gas station. And she's like, hey, can I um, get a ride to the battered women's shelter or can I have money for the bus? And your answer? I said, no, sorry. It was a response he regretted almost immediately. Yeah, that haunted me right from the start. John vowed from that day forward he would say yes to anyone who asked for help no matter what they needed. And so far he's done about a thousand good deeds. Has he ever been scammed? He doesn't know. And quite frankly, he doesn't care. I give because I want to give and that's just for me. And if anything, I go to bed and I feel happy. Yeah, come on in. Happy, but not wealthy. Is the check okay? Typically, John has just a few hundred dollars to his name and yet he continues to give, sometimes a lot more than just handyman services. Um, would you mind carrying it to the car? After the kidney surgery, I can't lift anything. That's right. John has now moved on to vital organs. It's unbelievable. Last month, Michael Moore, another total stranger, got John's kidney. This is not fixing somebody's scooter. No, it's an unbelievable act of kindness. Michael says the best gift ever, but not only for the obvious reason because you find out that there's other people in the world that care, and uh, that's, a, that's a strong message. A message that John says is only going to get louder. I really want to give a piece of my liver. Are you joking? No. If the grave is home plate, I want to come sliding into it at this point, you know? Bare minimum <laughs> organs. I don't know, you might find me on uh, My Strange Addiction, like I'm addicted to giving organs. <laughs> addicted to helping others. There are certainly worse vices. Nearly two years have passed since allegations of sexual misconduct against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein led to the Me Too movement. This morning, Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours takes stock 
with the journalists who broke the story. How you feeling today, sir? Really good. This is one spectacle that Harvey Weinstein never wanted to produce. His upcoming criminal trial on sex charges now scheduled for January. It could be the final act for the 67-year-old disgraced movie mogul who has already lost his business, his marriage, and his Midas touch, in large part because of the work of two New York Times reporters. This was an example of journalism stepping in where other systems had failed. And one question that we've pursued from the beginning is how did this producer manage to rack up 40 years of allegations without anybody finally stopping it? In a series of articles beginning in October 2017, Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor told stories of how Harvey Weinstein had pushed, even forced, women who worked for him into unwanted physical contact. Nobody was immune from sexual harassment. Even the most famous, shiny women and celebrities, including people like Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow, had been victims of this themselves. Weinstein has consistently said all the encounters were consensual. In a new book, Cantor and Tui go into detail about what they uncovered and how difficult it was to get women who said they had been victimized to go public. Gwyneth Paltrow was a source early on, much earlier than I think I realized from reading the articles. She did play a much more active role than anybody's ever known, but it was hair-raising for her because Harvey Weinstein had been such an important influence. The story Paltrow told the reporters began with a meeting with Weinstein in a hotel room when she was in her early 20s. She had a fax from her agent saying, here's where you need to show up. So she went to the hotel room. The meeting was pretty unremarkable, but at the end of it, she says he actually put his hands on her and said, let's finish in the bedroom. Paltrow says she refused and later confided in her boyfriend at the time, Brad Pitt. After Pitt confronted Weinstein, Paltrow told the reporters that Weinstein became enraged. He essentially said, you are going to screw up your whole career if you tell people about this. It was so uncanny because so many of them would tell variations on the same story. And all of these women with jobs at stake. Exactly. They were either there to discuss potential roles as actresses or they were junior employees in his company who were there to basically assist him in the course of the workday. But initially, most, including Paltrow, wanted their stories to remain private. There are so many good reasons not to go on the record with a story like this. The famous women often felt like this will become a sleazy Hollywood sex story that I don't want to be a part of. Women who were unknown said this will be the first Google search result for me for the rest of my life. I'll be tainted by this forever. Some women who wanted to talk couldn't. Weinstein silenced accusers with financial settlements, including non-disclosure agreements like this one. I think people would be astounded by how incredibly restrictive these settlements are. I mean, women can't tell each other what's happened. They can't tell their husbands. If they tell their therapists, their therapists have to promise to never tell anybody. But finally, the reporters found a source within the Weinstein company who would talk. Erwin Ryder, then a company accountant, had long been deeply troubled by his boss's behavior. This was Erwin's spot. He met Jody Cantor regularly inside this restaurant 
just blocks from the Weinstein offices. He gave us some really essential information and one document in particular that helped us finally break the story. The document was an internal memo written by a company literary scout on November 3, 2015, who described her own harassment and what she heard from colleagues. Female Weinstein employees, she wrote, are essentially used to facilitate his sexual conquests of vulnerable women who hope he will get them work. The notice proved, say Cantor and Tui, that when company officials learned about Weinstein's behavior, they did little to stop it. They ended up being so focused on just this sort of limited view of liability of the company that they sort of ignored the broader moral problem that was in front of them. And in the end, the company was destroyed by that moral problem. And perhaps more shocking, the reporters say. There are famous feminist lawyers who, it turns out, were in the business of silencing women and even helping Harvey Weinstein. Including lawyer Lisa Bloom, who was also the daughter of women's rights attorney Gloria Allred. In a December 2016 memo to Weinstein, Bloom suggests planting negative stories about an accuser, Rose McGowan. Clearly, she must be stopped in her ridiculous, defamatory attacks on you. She is dangerous. We can place an article, Ray, her becoming increasingly unglued. We reached out to Bloom, who says working for Weinstein was a colossal mistake. She goes on to say, I decided that I would never again represent someone accused of discrimination, harassment, or abuse. The New York Times investigation spurred a tsunami of stories that took down men once thought too big to fall. But it was followed by a backlash from those who think Me Too has gone too far. There's absolutely a need to push forward with the systemic changes that make sure that both the accused and the accusers are adequately protected. And they say they suspect there's even more change to come. Because once secrets become public, you never know what is going to happen next. Seven people died and many others were injured in last weekend's shootings in Texas. Some thoughts on the massacre from a woman who confronted the gunman face to face. Good morning, my name is Shauna Saxton. I survived the mass shooting that happened on Labor Day weekend in Odessa, Texas. A man pulled up next to my vehicle at a traffic light and pointed an assault rifle at me. His eyes were full of rage. Thankfully, I recognized what was happening and took immediate action. <clears throat> I floored it, saving myself, my husband, and my grandson. Doing nothing was not an option. Because I acted quickly, we were able to get away without harm. This awful experience has changed me. Things I once believed to be true have now been brought into question. Do private citizens need access to weapons as deadly as an assault rifle? This question and others like it are a hot topic here in Texas and in other states around the nation. It is a very difficult question. How do we promote public safety whilst protecting the rights of people who choose to bear arms? The problem by necessity will require compromise from both sides. 
No one is going to get exactly what they want. Life just isn't that way. I learned this lesson as a young girl with six brothers. But we can look for common ground and be willing to give and take. As Congress reconvenes, I call on all its members to be men and women of action. I implore our leaders to recognize this growing danger for what it is and act upon it. If we continue to do nothing, these tragedies will repeat themselves and more innocent lives will be lost. To the leaders of this great country, I say, take up the mantle of the responsibility you have been given. Be courageous. Stand for those who you represent. We pray daily for you that you will do the right thing and that you will be honorable in your work. Indeed, that you will find a solution by which all Americans can benefit. We must take action. We must do something. Doing nothing is not an option. The people of Hong Kong have taken to the streets again this weekend to protest mainland China's efforts to roll back its freedoms. Remy Innocencio has filed a Sunday journal. From peaceful protest to firebombs and gunshots. This has been Hong Kong's summer of discontent. If we don't fight, there was there's no, no future for us. Jimmy Lai was smuggled out of China at the age of 13 in a fishing boat. He's now one of Hong Kong's billionaire tycoons. Supporting the protests with young people leading the way. This movement is going to be persisting because it's a movement of martyrdom. Hong Kong was a British colony for more than 150 years. Ceded to the UK from China in the 1800s, it grew from fishing village to modern economic miracle. Rich, respected, and full of Western institutions. Claudia Mo works in one of them, elected as a pro-democracy legislator. Hong Kong people have managed to learn about universal values, human rights, democracy, rule of law. The writing has been on the wall, and the Hong Kong people just didn't realize or didn't pay enough attention to it. More than a century and a half of British administration will come to an end. The roots of this struggle date back to 1997, when the UK, in the person of Prince Charles, handed Hong Kong back to China. The UK and China agreed Hong Kong would be semi-autonomous, in charge of its internal affairs until the year 2047. That's when this city is set to revert to full Chinese rule. But for now, only Beijing has the power to appoint who runs for Hong Kong's chief executive, its top leader. The power is not with the people in Hong Kong. The power lies in Beijing. That's her big brother, her big boss. What was the government doing, I suppose, that inspired you to start getting active? At first, it was, of course, the extradition bill. 
That bill, backed by Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, would have given Beijing power to extradite locals and foreigners in Hong Kong to China's legal system, described by critics as corrupt. The protests began in June, at first peacefully, with a million-person march, organized by Bonnie Lung and the Civil Human Rights Front. We all know that legally, Hong Kong will be part of China. But what we really want to do is to preserve our system that we had enjoyed all our lives. The weeks stretched to months. Violence on both sides ratcheted up, spreading to the legislature, the airport, and the subways. This is essentially a large bunch of young people in Hong Kong fighting for democracy. The demonstrators added to their grievances, demanding the resignation of Carrie Lam, amnesty for arrested protesters, and an independent probe into police brutality. They literally beat up uh, not only protesters, but normal Hong Kong people, innocent people, every single day. Not everyone champions the protests. Our economy is bleeding. You know, a lot of people will lose their jobs. Regina Ip is a pro-Beijing lawmaker and supported the extradition law. She also supports the police. Currently, the priority, you know, must be to help the government bring back order because Hong Kong is suffering tremendous reputational damage. This past week, Carrie Lam finally blinked. The bill will be withdrawn. But critics say it's too little, too late. Will you still keep going out to protest? Yes, I'm, I'm still going to, to fight for freedom. Gavin, and like many other protesters, I hope you guys can forgive me. Has written a will. He keeps it a secret from his family in his backpack with instructions if he's killed. If you die, is it worth it? Yes, I, it's worth it because I'm doing the right thing. How does that make you feel as a mother of two yourself? Well, they think uh, they have nothing to lose. And uh, they've been carrying letters uh, to their parents <laughs> or, or the, the brothers and sisters uh, in their rucksack uh, saying that uh, no, I can't do this. There are fears this could come to a bloody climax. Just across the border, the People's Armed Police, China's paramilitary, has been moving forces and equipment into place. And state media has broadcast troops staging drills in which they suppress riots. Supporters of Beijing say it's just saber rattle. I think it's a show of force more as a deterrent and a shot across the bow. But there are those who still remember. We all know what happened 30 years ago in Tiananmen Square. Chinese government is not particularly known for loving their people, but they're known for killing their own people. This weekend, protesters again took to the streets. Standing up for what they believe, they say, no matter the cost. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening.
And please join us again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.